So what's up, Rev? Woo! Right on, right on. So, um, I feel like the Holy Spirit's asking me, telling me to ask a question to you guys. It's very important. But before we do that, I just want to say I'm like really shocked that there's as many people here as there are. This is really cool. So the question the Holy Spirit's asking me, telling me to ask you guys is, is this. Um, who here likes McDonald's a lot? Come on, be honest. Who likes McDonald's a lot? Good. Keep asking or keep eating McDonald's. We have uh, our brother Corey Reed in the back. Go to the one in Wheelersburg and buy food off of him. Keep him in a job. Um, All right, so who here, another show of hands, who here genuinely thinks that uh, McDonald's food has like good nutritional value? My brother in law. (laughs) All right, so significantly less hands. Okay, so we can all agree McDonald's tastes good, but that nutritionally it sucks. I'm sorry, Corey, it's just how it is. Um, now, in the same way that McDonald's has no legitimate nutritional value, no, like, nutritional substance, um, neither does atheism. all right? And I wish I could have coined that term, but I didn't. I read it in a blog somewhere. But I want to talk about atheism for a minute, all right? It carries no real intellectual substance, okay? atheism would be, or a atheist would be someone who doesn't believe in God. They don't know why they don't believe in God. Um, They refuse to hear any Christian's arguments for God's existence. Um, They pretty much get all of their information from Facebook memes, bumper stickers, um, stupid, what's Tumblr? Stuff like that. Like, that's where, that's where they get all their information for why that they don't believe God exists, okay? That's McAtheism. It's light. It doesn't take much study. It's fun, right? Like, it's fun to make fun of other Christians, or make fun of Christians. Um, So McAtheism, a lot of the time, is just South Park atheism. If you can't win a debate, just make fun of them, right? All right and, the, and the longer that I'm a Christian, the more I kind of look back um, whenever I was an atheist, and I find out that I was a McAtheist, all right? Um, I didn't, I had a few good arguments. I was fairly well studied, like I knew the Bible pretty well, but I really wasn't open to listening to any theist or Christian arguments for God's existence. I really didn't care. It, I didn't want to debate. I just really wanted to make fun of people, right? It's what I'm good at. It's one of my character flaws. I'm really, really, really good at making fun of people. Um, thank you. Um, but anyway, so I was a McAtheist. Now, it's good to note that not all atheists are like this, all right? There are a lot of really smart atheists with legitimate objections to Christianity that need to be addressed, all right? But for all intensive purposes this evening, the most peop- majority of people you're going to meet in Scioto County are McAtheists, all right? And the majority of people you're going to meet on campus, for that matter, are McAtheists, all right, and, but I've got to say this, since I've said that, and I'm not just going to bash one side here, I think one of the main reasons that people in the United States don't believe in God is because of Christianity. All right? Um, and what I mean by that, a Christian, if you will, is someone who doesn't study scripture, who doesn't study apologetics, which is what we're talking about this evening. Apologetics is a defense of the faith. Um, it's someone who doesn't study any of that, doesn't study any of scripture. They don't know why they believe in God. They don't know any arguments uh, or like debating techniques to talk to a non-believer. They actually don't probably hang out with any non-Christians. They live in a Christian bubble. They listen to Caleb. They wear their khakis, come to church. Um, they do that whole thing, vote Republican, um, which is fine if you're a Republican. That's cool. I'm a libertarian. Um, but like they, they do that whole thing, okay? That's a Christian. They don't know why they believe. They don't study scripture. They just do what their pastor tells them to do. They believe whatever they're told to believe, all right? And that's absolutely unacceptable today. It's unacceptable at any time, but I feel like it's especially unacceptable today with as much information as at our fingertips, 
All right, and, and on top of that, I feel like Scripture doesn't give us the option to be uneducated or uninformed. All right, you know, we can check out um, 1 Peter 3.15. We got it up here. Um, maybe not. Okay, instead, you must worship Christ as Lord of your life. And if someone asks about your Christian hope, always be ready to explain it. Okay, the, the, um, the word defense is in some translations. It says, be prepared to give a defense of the hope that you have in Jesus. Okay, the word defense in Greek is apologia. It's the where we get the word apologetics. A defense of the Christian faith. And tonight, that's what we're going to be focusing on. All right, we're going to be focusing on a historical case for Jesus Christ's resurrection. A historical case for Jesus actually existing. A historical case to trust the New Testament. All right, that's what we're going to be going over this evening. Now, before we get any further, I want you guys to know that what I'm telling you this evening is not meant for you guys to go out and start arguing with people. Um, it's not meant for you to go out and act like a condescending jerk to any non-believers that you know. Um, it's meant as a means to an end. Okay, everything we do as Christians, I've said it before, is a means to an end, and that end is sharing the gospel. So we learn apologetics. I hope you learn something from what I have to say this evening. And you can take it to non-believers that you know, and I hope you know some. And if you don't, get to know some non-Christians. All right, that's huge. And then you use apologetics and you try to explain Jesus as God, all right, to get your foot in the door so then you can tell them the gospel. And keep in mind that you will not convert someone with an argument. No one has ever been argued into the kingdom of God. You will not debate somebody into loving Jesus. All you can do is present your case for Jesus as being God and then go from there and tell them the gospel and the Holy Spirit has to do the rest, period. But this is to get your foot in the door. This is what we're studying this evening is getting your foot in the door to a non-believer. All right, so why does this matter? Why does it matter that we have a historical case for Jesus? Um, you know, I think that Paul makes it really clear that everything hinges on the resurrection of Jesus. Everything hinges. Everything that we teach hinges on Jesus Christ being raised from the dead, so we need to be able to present a case for this resurrection. You know, we can go to 1 Corinthians 15, 14 through 20. Um, it's going to be up here. Cool. And if Christ has not been raised, then all of our preaching is useless and your faith is useless. And we apostles would all be lying about God, for we have said that God raised Christ from the grave. But that can't be true if there is no resurrection of the dead. And if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ has not been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is useless and you are still guilty of your sins. In that case, all who have died believing in Christ are lost. And if our hope in Christ is only for this life, we are more to be pitied than anyone in the world. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. He is the first of a great harvest of all who have died. Okay, this is huge. The, the crux of Christianity, um, everything that we believe hinges on Jesus coming back from the dead. Right? Jesus' resurrection verified everything that he taught, that he was the Son of God, that he was God himself, that he had conquered sin, and that through his atoning death, anyone who believes in him will not owe God anything for their sin. Right? Everything hinges on the resurrection. So that's why that this is important. If this isn't true, then I'm putting the mic down now and I'm going home. All right? So the first question I think we have to ask if we're going to talk about did Jesus come back from the dead is was Jesus a real person at all? Now, I'll have you guys know this. Right off the rip, um, the vast majority of historians, whether Christian or Muslim or atheist, whatever, um, we all, or all historians, not we, I, I don't, I'm a college dropout, I don't have a degree. Um, yeah, hope you have some faith in me. Um, historians generally agree that Jesus was, in fact, a real person, okay, that he was a Jewish man who taught, who had a large following, who was eventually crucified by the Roman government, and that's it. 
All, right, all historians can agree on that much. Whether or not he came back from the dead is debatable, but all historians, except for a small minority, agree that that much is true about Jesus. Now, I want to kind of prove that to you guys, and I had like a 10, 15-minute history lesson I was going to give you guys, but I'm not going to bore you with that. It'll be on my blog if any of you want to read that. Um, but the first, the first guy I want to talk about, he's a first-century historian. Uh, his name was Josephus, all right? Flavius Josephus was his full name. Cool. And uh, he was a Jewish priest. Uh, this is kind of important, a little bit of backstory on him. He was a Jewish priest during the uh, Jewish revolt of 66 AD. Okay, the Jews fought the Romans and they lost. And then after this war, Josephus actually becomes a Roman citizen. All right, and what's good to know about that is then he went on to write a history of the Jewish revolution. All right, he called it the Jewish war. All right, um, so he writes that history, and historians today look back on that as, extre- as an extremely historically reliable document about the events that took place during the Jewish revolution of 66 AD. All right, so I told you that to tell you this. If, we, uh, if historians trust Josephus' account of that, then I feel like we can trust anything that he says. If you're a credible historian on one part, then you should be a credible historian on all. So with that in mind, we look at other things Josephus wrote. He wrote a book called Antiquities. All right, and in Antiquities, he wrote a history of the Jewish people from way, way far back Old Testament stuff until the day he was writing it. Okay, it's got a history of the Jewish people. And in that, he mentions Jesus because Jesus was Jewish. All right, and I'm not going to give you the full quote, but what he says about Jesus and this thing, it's called the Testimonium Flavianum. It just means Flavius's testimony. All right, in that, he talks about Jesus, and he says Jesus was a man who taught a lot of people, both Jews and non Jews that he did surprising feats, which we would call miracles, that he did things people couldn't understand. And he was eventually brought to the Roman authorities by Jewish leaders, and that he was crucified under the hand of Pontius Pilate, and that his followers were still around. That's what Josephus says. So that, that, I think, gives us some credibility to believe. So there's one first-century historian that says Jesus was a real person. All right? Moving on from him, there's another guy. His name's Publius Cornelius Tacitus. And that is a mouthful. Um, we'll just call him Tacitus. Okay, so Tacitus is a, a, a Roman historian, all right? So he's not Jewish like Josephus. He's a Roman historian. He's born in the first century. Um, what's good to know about him is that he is considered one of the greatest historians of his time, all right? He's one of the greatest historians of his time. Uh, he wrote five histories. If you break down all the books and all the histories he wrote, he wrote 30-plus books of history, all right, he's an extremely reliable resource. We use him for all kinds of stuff whenever we look back to know like, about Roman culture and Roman events and things that happen. Now, what's good to know about him is that he was a Roman senator, a Roman governor, and a historian. And what's good to know about him being a Roman senator is that he had access to the Roman Senate records, right? which means he had extremely reliable resources with which to write his histories. So he's extremely reliable. Now, in one of his uh, histories called The Annals... Um, he writes about a man named Christ, all right? He talks about how there was a guy named Christ, and he taught a lot of people, and um, he eventually was crucified during the reign of Caesar Tiberius at the hands of Pontius Pilate, and that his followers were still around, all right? Now, what's good to know about that is about both of the guys is Josephus was a Jew. He was not a Christian, so he would have had no bias or reason to mention Jesus unless he was a real guy, and Tacitus was a pagan Roman. He hated Christians, Absolutely hated Christians. If you actually read the text that he mentions Christ, he's talking about like he, talk, he calls Christians abominations. 
um, that Christianity is like the most evil superstition in the world. Um, so he's not a Christian either. So why would he mention a guy named Christ being crucified by Pontius Pilate unless it in fact happened? All right, so here we are. I said, I'm done with the history lesson. So there's two guys that are very reliable that mention Jesus being a real person. So we've made our case. Jesus is a real guy. So that's one down, a couple to go. So if we want to learn about Jesus, because he's a real person, where do we go? What book has more written about Jesus than any other book in the world? Yeah, Sunday school. I'm throwing softballs, man. Um, Knock them out. Okay, so we go to the Bible. Specifically, we go to the four Gospels in the New Testament if we want to learn about Jesus. But just like how we had to establish credibility with Josephus and Tacitus, we have to establish the New Testament's credibility. I think that's fair. All right, so what we do is uh, we have to know there's four criteria um, if, uh, for a document to be considered historically reliable. And those four things are authorship, date, location, and the origin of material. All right? Now, before I go any further, I have a story I want to tell you guys to kind of break up the monotony because I'm not a professor, I'm not a teacher. That is refreshing. Um, it's really good Diet Coke's good stuff. Um, all right, so I got a story to tell you guys. I'm in a band, all right? I'm in a metal band, a hardcore band called Shook Like Dead Men. Um, illegally download our stuff. I highly encourage it. Um, all right, and, and we, we go out and we play a bunch of shows, right? And we, and we try to spread the gospel while we're on stage. And we go wild when we're on stage. Like uh, Steve back there in the Dillinger hoodie, he, uh, he breaks stuff all the time. He's broken guitars. He's put a hole in a couple of walls in people's houses. We've broken a couple of stages on accident. Nothing ever happens on purpose, but we go wild whenever we're worshiping Jesus, all right? We're not Pentecostal, but we're really close. Um, so we, we really, really get into it. Now, we got invited to play a show um, it's a festival called Igthus. Um, for those of you who aren't really familiar with Igthus, it's a Christian festival in Kentucky. I don't know if they still have it or not, but we got invited to play. And we played in a really small side tent, a really small stage. There was only like 30 or 40 people, but we thought it'd be cool to go to say, ah, we played Igthus. Um, it sounds cooler than what it really is. But anyway, um, we went and we played that. And so we're on stage and everyone's going wild, jumping off stuff, breaking stuff. And uh, our vocalist at the time, we are like, Three quarters of the way through the set, he just does this, and he doesn't move. He, he keeps doing vocals, but he just stays like this and doesn't move. And uh, I was like, yeah, maybe he's like just really, really feeling it, right? Like, and he's decided to focus on what he's saying more than putting on a show, right? Um, so I was like, cool, maybe he's just being blessed by the Spirit. So we get off stage, and I ask him, I was like, hey, man, like, what happened? Like, why are you crouched down like that? And he goes... Uh, man, uh, round song six, I uh, busted out the crotch of my pants, and I'm not wearing any underwear. <laughs> All right, so here we are. We're a Christian band at a Christian festival, and our vocalist exposes himself to the entire front row. <laughs> All right, genuinely one of the funniest things I've ever, ever seen in my life. Um, I assure you that this story has a lot to do with what we're talking about. <laughs> Even if it didn't, though, it's a good enough story that I feel like you guys should have known it. Um, all right, so I told you that story to say this. Now, if I went home and a couple of years later, I decided to write that story down, right? And let's pretend that there's no text messaging, there's no blogs, there's no internet, there's no email, there's no postal service, right? I just write this story down. And a thousand years from now, someone finds this story, right? It's just pen and paper in my house. Um, the first thing we do is we look at authorship, right? Okay, who wrote this story about this guy busting his pants out and exposing himself at Igthus? 
Um, the first thing we look at is, is the authorship. So you say, who wrote it? Okay, it says it's written by David Doughty. All right, was David Doughty a real person? So you look at the history records and you see, yes, he was. He was born in 1992 to Crystal Blackburn in Portsmouth, Ohio. And he grew up to be the coolest person that ever went to Minford High School. Um, that's just how it is. If you look it up, it's a fact. Um, I was awesome. Um, not anymore, though. I'm a loser now. Um, anyway, so you can look and see that I'm a real person. Okay, so boom, you got authorship because it has to be written by a person that we actually know existed. So authorship. The second one is location. Where did you find this paper of these events? Ah, oh, we found it in southern Ohio. Cool, well, that makes sense. Okay, because he lived all of his life in southern Ohio, northern Kentucky, western West Virginia. He spent most of his time in the tri-state. So if you found this book of, the, of these events, it makes sense that it would have been there, right? So location is wrapped up. And then you go to date, all right? And you look and you see, well, everything points to this was written in 2013. And that makes sense because he was in the band from 2010 until 2014, and they played Ichthus in 2011, so if he recorded these events in 2013, the date matches, right? And the last thing you have to look at is the origin of the material. Where did he get the idea to write this story down, all right? And you look at, ah, he was an eyewitness. It makes sense. He was in the band Shook Like Dead Men. He would have been in Kentucky. He would have been playing Ichthus. He would have been at the show. He would have seen the dude rip his pants. Um, I'm sorry. It's super funny to me still. It's like four years ago. It's still funny. Um, so he would have been there. He was an eyewitness to what happened. All right, so boom, those are your four external criteria for a document to be historically reliable. So with all those things combined, you can say, we can trust that this story happened. All right? Now I'll have you guys know that the four Gospels that are recorded in the New Testament meet those exact same criteria. We have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We can historically verify that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John were real people, all right? We go location. Where were the Gospels found? Well, they were found in the area that the disciples and the apostles were doing their ministry, so the location matches. Date. All evidence points to those four Gospels being written before 100 AD, all right? So it would have been within the lifetimes of the four people that wrote the books, all right? And then we go to origin of material. Where do they get the idea to write this stuff down? Eyewitness accounts. We go to Matthew and we go to John. Those two dudes were eyewitnesses. They wrote it down. They saw what happened, and then they wrote it down. And then you go to, like, um, Mark and you go to Luke, and they were secondhand witnesses, all right? Like uh, Mark, for example. Peter, the disciple Peter, told Mark what happened, and Mark wrote down what happened. Make sense? So it's a secondhand testimony. Now, both of those in history are considered to be very reliable. Eyewitness is always number one, and secondhand witness is still considered pretty reliable. It's kind of like the telephone game. The further you get from the original source, the less reliable it is. But here we are in the New Testament. We have both firsthand and secondhand witnesses. All right? And another thing to note, too, about the historical reliability of the New Testament. So they meet all four of those criteria. All right? And a fifth thing to know is that as far as historians are concerned, if you have more than one source saying that the same thing happened, the better. And here we have, we look at them as like one big thing, like the Gospels, but we forget that it's four separate accounts from four separate witnesses. So four different people are attesting to the same thing happening. So boom, there's even more credibility. Now, I think the question that we have to ask ourselves now is, was there any reason, all right, this is called internal criteria. So we got the external stuff. We got the four big ones. Now we have to ask ourselves this question. It's, it's, it's internal criteria. Was there any reason that the disciples would have written these things down 
and would have preached the message that they preached, which line up exactly with the four Gospels, would they have taught those things for any, any biased reason? Right? Anything, was anything in it for themselves? By distorting history and actually distorting the facts, was there anything in it for them? This is the last thing that we have to ask. So basically we're asking, were the Gospel writers lying? You know, because we have to bear in mind the people who wrote the Gospels were um, either like the eyewitnesses that gave their account um, they lived with Jesus for three and a half years during his ministry. They would have known if he actually performed miracles. They would have actually known if he was the son of God. They would have actually known if he was crucified. And they would have actually known if he came back from the dead. All right, so the question we have to ask is, were they lying? What was in it for them? Now, I think that because there are embarrassing things in the Gospels, that leads us to believe that they were not lying. All right, and here's some embarrassing stuff in the Gospels. Um, one, the crucifixion of Jesus is embarrassing, which I know is like shocking to hear in a church. But like in the first century, crucifixion was a death reserved for um, thieves and rapists and murderers and terrorists, right? Things like that. Um, so the fact that the Son of God, God himself, was crucified would be an embarrassing thing. Furthermore, if you're making up a story, right, if the disciples were lying and concocting this whole story, why would you allow your God to die? makes no sense. So the crucifixion is embarrassing. All right, another one. Peter, who was one of the church leaders right off the rip, he denies Jesus in the Gospels three times. If you're making up a story and you're the one contributing to the story, why would you say, yeah, go ahead and throw it in there that I denied the Lord. That's cool. Like, no, like that's super embarrassing. And remember, you're living in an honor culture at the time where it's better to die than it is to be embarrassed or be dishonored. But Peter says, go ahead, keep that in there. All right, another thing, and this is the last one that I'll give you as far as embarrassing stuff goes. It was women who found the resurrected Jesus in his empty tomb. I know that sounds sexist, um, but in the first century in Jewish culture, you have to know that women weren't allowed to testify in court. Um, their, their testimonies to anything happening weren't, can, weren't worth hardly anything. All right, so if you're making up a story, why would you allow women to find Christ resurrected? They can't even stand in front of a court and say anything happened. So why would you let the crux of your entire faith rest on the word of a woman if no one takes women seriously? Unless it was, in fact, true that it was women who found the resurrected Christ. All right? So the embarrassing things lead me to believe that the, that the disciples, that the gospel authors were not lying. All right? And furthermore, you know, I'll, I'll ask people sometimes, you know, why do you think that, um, why do, why do you think that, that the gospels were made up? You know, like, what, what makes you think that the disciples were lying about the message, message they were preaching about Jesus being crucified for sin and raised from the dead? And they'll say, oh, man, they were in it for money, and they were in it for fame, and they were in it for power. Which, let's look at history for a minute. That is hilarious. We go to, uh, we go to 1 Corinthians, okay? You can check out Paul. Paul says, I don't preach for money. Paul says, I actually don't want your money. I like preaching for free. I let preaching the gospel be its own payment. I don't want your money. All right. So you look at the, the apostles and the disciples, and they were preaching for free. A lot of them didn't know where they were getting their next meal. All right. They were poor. They were broke. So money, gone. All right. They gained no money for preaching what they preached. Okay. We look at fame. All right. Remember, they're living in an honor culture, and usually becoming a Christian, forsaking Judaism, um, you would lose your family. All right. You would go from town to town preaching. You'd be mocked. You'd be thrown out of the temple. All kinds of other embarrassing things that dishonored you so you had no fame. They gained no fame. And the third thing people say, well, they got power. You know, whoever holds the keys to heaven and hell has more power than anybody. 
right? That's a fair argument that the disciples had power because they were preaching that there's only salvation through Jesus. But how much power does a person have if they can't even save their own life? How much power can a person really have if they cannot even save their own life? And here's what I mean. We can look back at history and know that the disciples, the apostles, everywhere they went, they preached the gospel and they would be beaten and thrown out, left by the city gates for dead. And then they would get up and they would move on to the next city where they would go in and be beaten again and thrown in jail. All right, So they were constantly being beaten up and constantly thrown in jail. And eventually, all but one of the disciples were murdered. They were martyred for, for, for what they preached. How much power does a person really have if they can't even save their own life with that power? So you can see the disciples gained absolutely nothing for what they preached. They gained nothing on earth for what they preached. So why would you preach it? Why would you die for something whenever you gained nothing on earth for it? Unless it's true. You know, and this is, this is the point that converted me to Christianity. People don't die for nothing whenever they, have, they gain nothing from a lie. All right, sure, if you get me to lie for something, you tell me that my family is going to be rich forever, I'll die for a lie, right? You tell me I'll give you all the power in the world if you just lie. Sure, I'll take the power for now and I'll die for it later. That makes sense. Fame, I'll make you the most famous person ever. Sure, I'll die for that eventually. Make me famous. That makes sense. But people, the disciples, would not have died for something that they did not get any benefit from here on earth. They gained nothing. But they thought it was worth dying for. They lived with Jesus. They would have known if they were lying. And they went to their death saying, it's true that Jesus is the Son of God. It's true that he died in our place for our sin. And it's true that he rose from the dead. They thought that it was worth their entire life to teach people that we are sinners. And because of our sin, we owe God a debt for our sin. And that debt is death and hell. But God's a merciful God, but he's also a God that is just. So he sends Jesus to come to earth and live a sinless life and ultimately take our sins upon himself and then go to the cross as a sacrifice where where God pours out wrath and death and damnation on Jesus while he's on the cross in our place for our sin. And then three days later, God raises Jesus from the dead to prove a few things. That Jesus was God. That everything Jesus taught was true about himself. That Jesus had conquered sin and that Jesus' sacrifice was perfect. That's what the disciples said was worth dying for. They said it was worth their life to preach that. They gained nothing from it. So unless it was the truth, why would they have taught it? They said it was absolutely worth everything that they had, all their money, all their honor, and all their power. It was worth all of that to preach that exact message that I just preached to you. They were telling the truth. I'm convinced that they were telling the truth. They sealed their testimony with their blood, and they would have known if they were lying or not. That's a powerful testimony to be able to die for something that you know whether or not it's true, and you die for it anyway. You know, so, so why am I talking about this? Why am I talking about apologetics? Whenever we're doing a series on evangelism, you know, why are we doing this? Like I told you guys, it's to get your foot in the door so you can tell people the gospel. But even furthermore, um, 
You know, like I, we got to ask the question, if, if the disciples were willing to die for that message because they knew it was so true, and we claim to believe the exact same true message, why are we not willing to tell people? It literally costs us nothing in the United States to tell people the gospel. Literally nothing. Someone might think that you're strange, or they might call you a Bible thumper. They might not invite you to a party. They might not invite you out for drinks. They may not invite you into their house to eat with them. The chick you think's cute in class or whatever might think that you're some Bible beater and she doesn't want to talk to you anymore. Big friggin' deal. Right? Are we so wrapped up in high school that we have to think, like, we want everyone to think that we're cool? Like, does it really matter? You know, like I think if we, if we look back at the early church fathers in the first, second, and third centuries, if they were here today to look at us, they would say, you're a bunch of cowards. Like, you look at Peter, he was crucified for preaching the gospel. You look at Paul, they cut his head off for what he preached. You look at John, they boiled him in oil. You look at Andrew, they crucified him. They were all willing to die for this, and we're not even willing to look foolish for it. There's no room for cowardice in the kingdom of God. The early church fathers really, really, really drive that point home. There's no room for cowardice. What are you afraid of? Jesus says he's conquered the world. What are you afraid of? One of the things Christians used to say, I I read a quote, it was, what are you going to do, kill us? I mean, like, think about that for a minute. What's the absolute worst thing someone can do? They can kill you. And if you're a Christian, they're sending you to be with Jesus. Big deal. And no one's going to kill you in the United States for preaching the gospel. You have nothing to lose except your pride. Jesus says, be prepared to take up your cross and follow me to death. Losing your pride, being mocked, and everything else, accompany dying. But I don't want you guys to share the gospel because Paul and Peter would have called you a wuss. That's not why I want you to share the gospel with people. I want you to share the gospel because you understand that Jesus Christ died for you when he didn't have to, that God lovingly chose you to follow Jesus when he didn't have to. He could have easily damned you just as easily as he saved you. Now, out of gratitude, being grateful children of God, we should do what Jesus told us to do. And in the Great Commission, Jesus tells us to go spread the gospel to everyone. That's why I want you to go and tell people the gospel of Jesus, that he was crucified for sin and was raised from the dead. That's why I want you guys to go, because you understand what Jesus did for you, and you want to show him that you love him back. You want to show gratitude for the sacrifice that he made. Because remember, if Jesus died for us and gave everything for us, then we should be willing to give everything back to him. Let's pray. Uh, Father, thank you for for letting us all meet here, God, even though it's Super Bowl Sunday. Um, God, thank you so much for the cross, God, for the, for the testimony of the disciples sealed in their blood. God, thank you for apologetics, for the fact that we can look back in history and, and know that your resurrection actually happened and that you were indeed the Son of God. Father, I thank you for that truth because if it weren't for that, I would not be here right now. Father, I thank you for forgiveness, and I thank you for dying in our place for our sin, God. And Father, I pray that we take what we've learned this evening, God, and, and the, the testimony of the disciples, Father, and that we go out and, and, and inspired because of that, but more inspired because of your sacrifice on the cross, that we go out and we share the gospel with people, that we go out and tell them that you died in their place for their sin, and that if they put their faith in you, they owe God nothing for what they've done.
Father, I pray for us to, to live in light of that and not be ashamed of the gospel, to be willing to be bold and go out and proclaim it to everyone. In the name of Jesus, amen.